I want you to think about the word excessive for a moment. Like, when was the last time you used the word excessive? So growing up, I did not think flying was excessive, but I certainly thought it was a luxury because we just had a regional airport near us, and so it was several hours to an international airport. So I only flew a few times before I was 20, but by the time I was in my mid-20s, then I had flown several more times. I had some friends who were pilots, and so all of a sudden this thing that was kind of a luxury became a standard. And I don't know if you think flying is a luxury or standard or considered excessive, but I want you to take a look at this video that's caused quite a stir and see if you would define it as excessive. I know. Hi, I'm looking for the shower. There are no showers here, ma'am. Well, I'm gonna look pretty silly dressed like this going to the bar. There's no bar here, but we do have hot towels and a bag of peanuts. Emirates planes have showers and they have bars. Uh, this isn't an Emirates plane, ma'am. No, no, no. There's no shower? No, and there's no bar. <laughs> yeah. Why are you laughing like that? You're killing me. so <laughs> much. such a nightmare. I was on a plane and it was nothing like this. I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you so much. Hey, is there, um, is there someone that we could talk to about maybe flying this around a little bit longer? Just like an hour. Excessive? Well, I'm the United Arabs Emirates-based airline, um, Emirates Air, says it spent $20 million on that little spot. And that 60-second clip, at least earlier in the week, had been viewed already 3.8 million times since its debut October 5th. Okay? So, um, now, if you go on YouTube and look at it, it's received a thumbs-down rating at least a third of the time. I guess some people are calling this elitist or the snobbiest ad ever. I don't know. Um, but uh, I do know that I, or at least I looked up, a round-trip first-class ticket from JFK in New York City to Dubai is $25,000. So, I mean, excessive, maybe not. The relevant question isn't whether or not you think it's excessive. The relevant question is, the world we find ourselves in is rapidly changing, and how do we respond to it? How do we live in it? Not just survive, but actually thrive in this world. Now, one of the ways that we're going to answer that question is with the book of Esther. Not just because it's a great story, because it is. It's a great story. It's got satire. It's got irony. It's got suspense. It's got kind of adventure. It's got some humor. Um, and not just because it's one of only two books that are named after women in the Bible. Actually, the only probably the only, for sure the only book, but one of the few characters where the woman is a heroine in her own right, regardless of motherhood. There's actually no mention of Esther being a mom. So if you're someone who struggles with that um, on either side, I, I think Esther has something to say to us. And if you're not a woman, Esther has some things to say to us. It's, it's written in, it's one of two books that's written in the Jewish exile. The whole book happens when they're in exile. So they were in exile with Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then Greek and Rome. But uh, it has the only festival that is outside of the first five books of the Bible. 
Other, all the rest are in those first five books. So, the big thing about Esther, and what causes quite a stir, is it's, it's God's name is never mentioned anywhere in the book. And I think one of the reasons why is because it's a big book of partying, and it's, it's written in a very hostile, exile world. And yet, the reason that we're going to do this series on it is because, like almost no other book, it shows us how to honor God in a godless world. It actually shows us how to have faith in a hostile world. So let's jump in to Esther 1. If you're having trouble finding Esther and you're looking it up in your Bible, it's right in front of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, that area, so that should give you a good clue. The year is 483 B.C., and it's approximately 50 years after King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire before, or Empire before Persia kind of took over from the, the Medes. It's when they defeated the Babylons, the Babylonians, and then released all of their captives. Remember, the Jews had been captives to Babylon for 70 years. God predicted it in Jeremiah. And, and now they're free to go home. And, and many do. Well, several do. But many stay. They stay in their places of exile in the foreign lands. They have probably done what Jeremiah told them. Um, they settled down. They built nice homes. They lived in fine cities. They had comfortable lives. They chose to stay in the prosperity of exile, and so this book shows us they had faith in that exile too. So listen to what these first several verses describe and what you sense this land is like. Esther 1 says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At the time, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, or the fortress of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The gardens had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and of silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and other costly stones. The wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the, king's, the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he had wished. Some Miller time there. But Queen Vashti, she also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Sounds like a little more sophisticated party. And on the seventh day, King Xerxes was high in high spirits from the wine. So what do you notice about this setting? 
There's lots of wine. Mm-hmm. What else? No expense spared. Yeah, my uh, oldest daughter and I watched Jurassic Park, and that's the refraining line. We like, needed to start with the first one. You can judge me later. But he, he kept saying, no expense spared, no expense spared. Yeah, there is no expense spared. Anything else? Sure, sure. There's a party going on. Queen was having her own party. And in Persia, that's different. Like a lot of Middle Eastern cultures, the women and the men would dine separate. But in Persia, most of the time they didn't. So uh, the, the historians think that maybe the six-month party was a military planning party because right after this, um, the king goes and invades Greece. And so part of what the writer's trying to do is show the mightiest king in the world at that time and not only the might, he's trying to show the height of his glory. This is the peak of the Persian Empire. The movie 300 was based on the, one of the events in the planning, in the military episode that happens after this three years. And so there's a decline that starts to happen here, but it is the height of his glory, and anywhere anyone looked, I think you'll see in the text that the wealth and the power are obvious. I mean, the writer goes into the details of the linens and the couches and the goblets. I mean, it is to describe um, what the Greeks say. I mean, and the Greeks hated Xerxes more than any other man on the planet, and yet they were impressed. I mean, completely impressed with his wealth and with his splendor. They couldn't deny it. Now, Xerxes, actually, his... His Hebrew name, it, it might be in your Bible, is Ahasuerus, which is a translation from the Persian, there's a point to this, the Persian name um, that's uh, Kishaya and Arshan, which means hero among kings. Here, that's his Persian name. So he, he gave it to himself, okay? Potentially his dad gave it to him, but hero among kings. This is a man who is totally preoccupied with displaying his glory and his power. That's what the writer is subtly trying to get across. And now we'll see that King Xerxes, who's been displaying all of his power and all of his possessions, he's now going to display his ultimate possession. On the seventh day, when the king was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, um, I'll just let you read those, to bring before him Queen Vashti. Vashti means most beloved or very beautiful. Wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, the text doesn't really tell us why Queen Vashti didn't want to go. I mean, had they arranged that he was going to show off her amazing public speaking skills? She was going to give an oratory on the height of the Persian emperor, empire. Or maybe she's a high IQ and she was going to challenge any of the nobles to, like, geometry? No. No, he was going to display her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Huh, I wonder why she didn't want to go in front of at least 127 nobles, plus all their military professionals. I mean, to a whole men who have been drinking for seven days, on top of the six months. 
And, and King Xerxes doesn't say, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm kind of an idiot. I did not realize that this would be kind of objectifying to you, that this might humiliate you. I, I'm sorry. I should not have done that. No, because this is a man who's preoccupied with showing his greatness. And when his wife refuses, he's like, well, something must be done. Because now the mightiest man who rules the world can't rule his own wife. The writer wants us to catch that. And he's actually a man who's not just obsessed with displaying his power, he wants more power. And so if he, if he can show off to this party and he invites the least to the greatest, the, the grander the hospitality, the more power he must have. And yet his wife says no. So what, is, what do we find in the rest of this story? We find a man who has very little inner strength. His character is nubs. It just, it's whittled down. He constantly needs other people to give him advice on what to do. He can't make up his own mind. So he consults his advisors, and he's furious. Have you ever been furious? Have you ever, like, raged over something? And people are like, whoa, what happened? I would say when that happens, it's because it struck something in you that is so deeply core in you. It's something that you desperately care about, and you, you have a hard time actually explaining why you got so mad. He was disrespected. He, his, power, his, his power that he had, his wife just called him out on it, and he is furious. And so he goes to his advisors, and it, it was customary to consult the experts of the law. If you've read Daniel before, you'll know he was an expert, and he was consulted during the times with men who understood the times. And he said, according to the law, what needs to be done to Vashti? What should happen? And now we see enter the politics of the day. Enter the flattering advisors who, who know that if they cater to Xerxes' ear, what he likes to hear about how great he is, that they can really manipulate this person. The advisors can get the king to do pretty much what they want if they give him enough flattery. And so the, the people say, oh, Queen Vashti's done wrong. Do you know, this is, do you know what this is going to cause this is going to cause all women to disrespect their husbands. I mean, they'll, hus- wives all over the empire will say, hey, Queen Vashti stood up to the king, so I can stand up to you. I'm not staying in here. Oh, king, we've got to change this. Go down to verse 20. Because therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree that will be written in the laws of Persia and Media that, can, that cannot be repealed. That's key for the story later. That Vashti can never enter the king's presence. And so, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast empire, throughout all of this magnificent empire, when when that edict is proclaimed, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Because we know that'll work, right? Yeah, because the best way to get respect is to demand it. Yeah, it doesn't work for me either. And, and funny thing, we never hear about this edict again. In fact, most of the people in chapter 1 we'll never hear about again, except for Xerxes. Vashti will get a little byline. But this is, the writer is going into immense detail that seems maybe insignificant. Like, who cares what color the, the linens were? This was like, sorry, i got to do the math in my head now, 2,500 years ago. Like, why, why put this decree about 
demanding respect into this chapter. Like that just, it doesn't even come up in the rest of it. Why do that? Because the writer's trying to tell us what the times are of the people of faith that are living in exile. I mean, he's not just mocking the powerful king who can't have power over his wife. He's also trying to get us to see the hostility of the culture, that there's a society that is filled with egomaniacs and politicians who are trying to be selfish and marginalize others to grab and keep their own power. Can you imagine a land where that's true? Can you imagine a land where in a a culture where power and ego and indulgence and excess are the highest values? Hmm, that was really good. I'm gonna, do do somebody have a selfie stick that I could, I could, um, record that, and then I could put it out on my Periscope Twitter feed, because that, that where power and ego and indulgence, maybe you're not seeing the irony. <laughs> I mean, this is the land of Persia. And I would say there are quite a few similarities to the land that we live in. Power is a high value. Power-hungry people are around us all the time. And how do we respond to it? How do we live in it? Esther tells us. Because they're Christians, I mean, Christians can actually thrive in this culture. People of faith can thrive in this culture. If they engage the culture, they will transform it. Jesus did that. He tells us to do that. And we often choose the easier options. First one we choose is, is sometimes Christians choose to escape the culture. They just, if, if I believe and follow Jesus, but I am going to run away from the excess that I see. I mean, look at uh, Esther chapter 1, verse 5. The king invite, had a party lasting seven days, a banquet in the enclosed garden. And do you know what he did? He invited all the people from the least to the greatest in the citadel of Susa. This isn't just the king's palace. This is like kind of the... The royal, part of, the royal part of the city, and I, I mean that in an expansive piece. It's not the whole city, but it's much of the city. The city of Susa. And he has a Susa Palusa. I mean, he has this big party. And he invites everyone. Would you go? Would you go to the party? Because if you want to escape culture, then you probably wouldn't go. You'd say, there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to that party. Uh-uh, there is going to be too much drinking there. I mean, I, I don't think I could even hold one of those gold goblets because everyone would assume there was wine in it, and I just, I haven't had it. I am, no way, no, and I, I'm sure. Did you, you know, the king gets a little drunk, and, you know, he might, he might do some inappropriate things. I cannot go to that party. Now, I don't mean to mock it, because if we think about the culture we live in, escaping it is a tempting proposition. Did you know that the latest shooting of the Umpqua, um, I think that's how, Umpqua Community College in Oregon on October 1st is the 294th mass shooting in 2015 alone, where four or more people have been shot. 294 in just this year. This um, website, Shooting Tracker, they, they started tracking this after the Newtown, Connecticut shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in December of 2012. That, that these mass shootings, there have now been 994 events in 13, 14, 
and 15 thus far, resulting in over 1,230 people dying. This is the world we live in. And it's not just all around the country. In Minnesota, we have just the FBI office in the Twin Cities added a fourth terrorism squad, anti-terrorism squad, to its intelligence operations um, because of the number of people that are becoming or trying to become jihadists. So fighting for um, the, I'll say the evil part of Islam, fighting for the um, radical part of Islam because Minnesota leads the nation in people who are attempting to leave the country or have left the country to fight with countries like Iraq and Syria uh, terrorism. This is the world we live in. It is, it is not out there. It's right here. So some people choose, they, they're like, I'm going to get off the grid. I got to get off the grid. I got I to gotta go. I got I to gotta escape. But how off the grid can you get? Even if you moved yourself out of the city or out of the suburbs, would you really be safe? I think most of us are not when we're escaping the culture of the day, we're not escaping shootings. We're escaping, um, maybe this isn't you, but we're escaping books that we're afraid to read because they might have dark magic in them or we're, we're escaping movies that might have um, something that we're, we're not sure we want to we wanna promote. Um, and and we're, we're closing up our houses and locking all, turning off all the lights on Halloween because it's evil. And, and Jesus never ran from the world. In Luke 13, he's near Jerusalem, and the religious leaders are saying, the Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. And he says, you tell that fox that I will keep driving out demons, and I will keep healing people today, tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll accomplish my purpose. Now, obviously, he's doing a little bit with the third day thing over there about the crucifixion, but listen to the words he's saying. Someone wants to kill him, a powerful man, and he goes to the two things. He says, I'm going to drive out demons because he knows that this is not just some evil people. There's a spiritual war going on. Ephesians 6 tells us that there are battles in the heavenly realms of evil truth, spiritual truth. It's not science fiction, there's realities of angels and demons. He says, I'll keep driving those out, and I'll keep healing people. That's what Jesus wants us to be about. So some people don't escape culture, but they, they think that we're, they're supposed to criticize culture. They think that when they get the invitation to the Susapalooza, they're supposed to go and point out how bad everyone's being. You know, just point their finger and go, oh, you see those goblets? I bet, I bet that could have fed like 300 people in a starving country if they would have just sold those goblets and given those to charity. And you know, the wine, that's, that was just inappropriate. And what he said to his wife, that was inappropriate. They just, do, do you know people like this? Like, it's hard for me to spend time on this subject because honestly, it turns my mouth and my face and my being sour. And, and I sometimes can criticize. But, but the thing I'm talking about, if you know someone like this that's, that's criticizing they're not, there's a difference between criticizing and someone who's trying to critique for improvement that genuinely cares about a system or a person improving and becoming better. Their, their criticism or their critique is different than someone who is criticizing to point out flaws. If you know those people, do you walk away from them feeling better? Or do you walk away from them feeling sucked? 
dry. And if, if, if this is something that you do, or you might occasionally do, do you feel better when you do it? And I mean it as an honest question. Some people say they do feel better because they can't meet their own standards and they know it, so they just point out other people so they don't meet it either. They feel better. But Jesus just did not have time for these people. When, when Jesus was being criticized for celebrating instead of abstaining, he said, hey, there's going to be a time to fast, there's going to be a time to mourn, there's going to be a time to abstain, but right now it's not that time. We're going to party. And when he's criticized for eating with the sinners and eating with the, the people that are outside of the faith, he says, hey, who needs God? The people who are here or the people that say they're right with God, the, the sick people or the healthy people? Who needs the doctor? It's the same logic. Jesus is saying, I'm going to go where I need it. He, he just doesn't have time for the people that criticize. So, so there are Christ followers who, who don't want to escape culture and they don't want to criticize culture. They actually want to go into culture, but in their, in their zeal for going into culture, they actually just jump into it, they live into it, they accept it all, they kind of get consumed by it and swept away by it. These are the people that, that see the invitation to the Susa Palusa and they're like, yeah, I'm going! And they drink too much wine and they make a fool of themselves and have to apologize for it later with their coworkers. Hey, I know I said I love Jesus and I acted really, really foolish. They're the people when, when Xerxes demands that his wife comes out, his very, very attractive wife, they're like, woo, 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 yeah, I want to snack on some of that eye candy. They just have no restraint. They are people that, that go to church and they greet people in the name of the Lord and then they use the name of the Lord with hand gestures in the parking lot or in the by the stoplights. They're the people that, um, they drink all the same things, they eat all the same things, they listen to all the same music, they, they watch all the same movies, they go to all the same websites as someone who hasn't surrendered themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And, and Romans 12, 12 too, tells us to not conform to the culture. It says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This is what Jesus calls us to. When his disciples are at the end of his ministry, and, and one of the mothers, the mother of James and John, comes to them, and he says, Jesus, you know, like every other kingdom in the world, Persia, Greek, Roman, um, Assyria, Babylon, everyone have these seats of power. And the, the biggest ones are on the left and the right. Daniel had one of these. Um, we're going to read about a guy when, when we go through the series of another guy that held one of these. I want my sons to have those. And Jesus says, no, no, no. See, if you're going to lead in my kingdom, you're going to suffer. So you don't know what you're asking for. Oh, no, 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 we're good. The boys jump in. They're right there. We're good. We want, we want this. And it says in Matthew 20 that when the others heard about this, because Jesus said, hey, I, I, it's not for me to choose. Like, the, my Father in heaven is going to choose who have those seats of power. It says that the other ten, when they heard about this request, they were indignant. You know why? Not because it was a bad thing. Because they were mad they didn't think of it first. They're like, oh! They get sucked into the culture too. 
And Jesus says, you know what? That's the culture that we live in. There are powerful kings, it says. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of this world lord their power over people. And authorities, the officials, they flaunt their authority over people. But among you, it will be different. Jesus is saying, among you, you're going to look different. Not so with you. The power that's in the world is not greater than the power that is in you. I'm giving it to you. Besides, if you can't get into the culture, if you can't engage the culture, then how will people see Jesus? So that's the really the only response that is one that will actually bring transformation. How do you live as a person in this hostile world with faith? You engage the culture. You accept some of it, you reject some of it, and you transform all of it. You accept some of it, you reject some of it, and you transform all of it. You engage the culture. You engage, you get the invitation to the Susa Palusa, and you go, hmm, Jesus, should I go? I don't know, there might, be, there might be some inappropriate things. But everybody in the city, from the least to the greatest, is going to be there. What an opportunity. Okay, God, I'm going to go. I've, I'm going to pray for and look for opportunities to share truth and to share hope and to share the love that you have for people, God. I'm going to go. I'm going to eat and drink with restraint, but I'm going to partake. I'm going to have conversations. I'm going to invest in people. I'm going to look for opportunities. And I'm going to be a transforming agent. I'm going to engage in it. That with the story of Jesus, when he says to the, the people, hey, all of these people in the world, they, they flaunt their power, but not so among you. Among you, it will be different. He says, if you want to be a leader, then be a servant. Those who want to be great, Matthew 20 says, those who want to be great, they should be a slave. Think about that. Jesus isn't saying, oh, look at the power in the world. Run from it. Oh, look at the power in the world. Criticize it. Oh, look at the power grabbing. Go for it. He says, look at the power in the world. Look at how the officials flaunt it and transform it. Engage it. You engage it by serving. You go into the battle. You go into the culture. And you don't grab power. You lift up others. You serve them, you come around them, and when you do that, you are challenging the culture. You are offering something richer. You are offering something better. You are offering something eternal. That's what's going to bring hope. That's what's going to bring transformation. That's why we should engage the culture. And when we do it, the world is changed. Now next week, we'll talk about how we prepare well to go into that world. But for this week, I just want to close with, with you and I thinking about one way that we can engage our world this week. One way we can engage the culture. Maybe it's serving someone in your job. And maybe it's serving someone in your family. You know, the National Retail Federation estimates that, that Americans will spend $6.9 billion on Halloween. Okay, I know I, I just said, you know, close up your house, and that's bad. But $6.9 billion on a holiday that's dedicated to dressing up scary so that you can protect yourself from the dead? I mean, we know that the Spirit of God that is in us is greater than the Spirit that is out there. We don't need to spend $6.9 billion on this holiday. 
but we could spend a little bit of money and get good candy. Remember those times if you participate in this? You're like, they gave a full-size Snickers. Oh my gosh. Wouldn't you want to be that house? Engage the culture. You could put out hot chocolate or you could put out apple cider. You could be that family that's like trying to give to the adults. That's not alcohol, but something good. You could be a family that dresses up in fun ways, not just evil ways. You could be in a book club, and they might read a book that you're like, ugh, I don't want to read that. But, but then you hear the Spirit of God say, you know what? There is, there is just a tiny little shard of spiritual truth in that. You could go. You could go. You could hear the cries and the hopes and the thoughts of the people that are, that are actually more hostile to Christians than for Christians. You could go. You could be a part of that. That's how you engage the culture. If you're a runner, go get a running group and just run with people. Hear their story. This is how we bring transformation. This is how we bring light. This is how you change the world. We don't do it in our own strength. We have to have the Spirit of God. But we'll see some people who have just a sliver of the Spirit of God. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And they save their people. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for stories that when we read them, we have a hard time finding you. We have to search hard for you. I think that's why the writer left your name out of the book. So we have to search hard for you because there are times in our lives and there are cultures and situations where we have to search hard for you. God, I pray that we would reject escaping the culture. We would reject criticizing the culture. We would reject conforming to the culture and we would engage with your world that you love with people that you gave yourself to, with the world that you died for, and a world that you want to bring true and lasting hope to. Help us to be those people, God. If we are struggling with our relationship with you or not thinking that we're part of this family of Christ followers, I pray that we would see how you reached out through these stories that we shared and how you bring love and compassion and truth and we would walk in your compassion and truth. We would reject the ways that we conform, and we would instead choose you, Jesus. We pray that you would build us up, that we would rise up, not to be great in our own strength, God, but to shine in a glorious way for you, to engage with a culture that needs you, that is hostile to you, to bring real, lasting life.